Well, what a joy it is to be able to sing with you this morning and to rejoice in our great God, the love that he has demonstrated toward us, and the opportunity that we have to demonstrate that love toward others as well. Uh, This morning, before I begin my sermon, I just want to uh, publicly thank the Lord for his goodness and grace. It was uh, one year ago, I think this Sunday, uh, that I first came across this platform as your new pastor, and I rejoice in two things, God's goodness and grace in the midst of that year, and tonight I'll be talking a little bit more about that year in our lives, but God's goodness and grace is sustaining power and strength, and then I also want to, I I think that we've been able to make it a year, not only because of God's goodness, uh, but because of your your graciousness and encouragement in your prayer, and so uh, I'm just so thankful, my heart is full, I love the church family. I love what you love, I love the text, I love the gospel, and uh, I'm thankful to be with you and to uh, to start into year two, year two of 30 or 40, right? Is that what we're shooting for? Or the rapture, that would work too uh, at any moment, that trumpet will sound. I think think we we sang that a few times today, so that's a good reminder to us. Uh, If you take notes by way of handouts, there's a handout in the bulletin. I also emailed it to those who are members Uh, You can take notes in that way. If you'd like to be on that email list, you can sign up at the Welcome Center. Uh, We've been working through 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul uh, addresses a topic that the Corinthians had posed to Paul in a question. They'd written him a letter, and in that letter, there were questions and statements that they made about food offered to idols. And so Paul begins to systematically answer the question whether or not the Corinthians uh, could participate and eat meat, which had been formerly associated with idols. And in these chapters, I think that Paul lays out a a set of principles that can act like a grid that can help us make wise, informed decisions in our own sets of controversial issues. Well, throughout the book to this point, uh, one of the things you probably have picked up on is that the Corinthian church struggled knowing how to properly relate to the world and the society around them. You can keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 10, which is where we're going to be in a moment, but flip flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the end of this chapter. And I want to just read a few verses to you to remind you or show you how difficult it was for the Corinthian assembly to know how to relate to the world. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such and one. Remember when we went through 1 Corinthians 5, I made the argument that Paul had written a letter before 1 Corinthians. It's called the previous letter. And in that previous letter, he had some things to say about the way believers should treat immoral people. But the Corinthian church, at least some of them, overreacted to what Paul said. And if you look in your Bible at 5, 9, and 10, you can see that some of them started separating from all the immoral and uh, idolizing people in the city of Corinth. And that's a problem for Paul. 
And the reason that's a problem is, he says, if you're going to start separating from all the immoral lost people around you, you would have to go out of the world. And so Paul says, really my intent, and let me clarify, if you look at verse 11, he says, as I'm writing this letter to you, I write so that you would separate from any so-called believer, someone who proclaims Christ and is immoral, idolater, and go through the list of sins there. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, it becomes clear that some of the Corinthians, some of the believers started separating from all the immoral lost people in the world. And so Paul has to say, that's not my intention. You can't separate from all lost people like that. The Corinthian church struggled in knowing how to properly relate to lost people. That's also obvious, and we won't turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it appears that some of the Corinthians were willing to compromise the very message of the gospel itself. The cross, remember, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul felt pressure to change the message of the cross because it was foolishness to some people, Greeks. And it was a stumbling block to others. And so perhaps some within the church at Corinth put pressure on Paul to change the very message itself so that it wouldn't be an offense to lost people. Okay, so as you're working through 1 Corinthians, you go back to 1 Corinthians 10 now. As you're working through the book and you're getting a picture of the church, you see, you know what? This church was really messed up when it came to knowing how to properly relate to lost people in this world. And that is where the end of 1 Corinthians 10 is given by Paul to greatly assist believers in knowing how to relate not only to meat offered to idols, but knowing how to relate to lost people in different scenarios. If you were here last Sunday night, I started into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 30. In these verses, Paul imagines three scenarios where the Corinthian church, where believers might run into idol meat. The first one is in verses 14 through 22, and we handled this all last week. But in verses 14 through 22, Paul imagines what it would be like for the Corinthian believers to run into idol meat in an idol temple. In fact, if you look down in your Bible at verse 21, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 21, you'll see that he talks about the table of demons in the middle of that verse. And so Paul briefly considers whether or not the Corinthian believers can eat idol meat in an idol temple, and his answer is simply no. His answer is stated as a command in verse 14, flee from idolatry. And then he goes throughout the text and he argues why, he gives them reasons why you cannot go into an idol temple and eat idol meat there. And the reason he gives is because eating at a religious ceremony equals worship. Remember this from last Sunday night? Shake your head if you were here. Okay. If not, you can see this in your Bible because uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 14 through uh, 22 here, Paul talks about what we do at the Lord's table first. He says, when Christians gather and eat at the Lord's table... Aren't they worshiping? 
Okay, and so the point he's making is eating at a religious service is a form of worship. Then he goes to the example of the Feast of Israel in the Old Testament. He says, you want when Israel, when they were offering all of those feasts to Yahweh and they were eating together and celebrating together, wasn't that a form of worship? And so from that principle, Paul says this, when, when unbelievers gather in the streets of Corinth to eat idle meat, that is a form of worshiping false gods and demons use that. And so Paul, in teaching us a principle of Christian liberty, answers this first question. What about the idol temple, Paul? Can I go in there and eat? And his answer is no. But then if you were here last, last Sunday night as well, you know that the answer changes completely in the marketplace. So look in your Bible at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 25, where Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat markets. Paul, can I buy idle meat in the meat market? Can I buy the cheap meat, the discounted meat in the market? And his answer here is that the Corinthians do not have to ask the vendor where this meat came from. Is this meat polluted? Is it tainted? I said last week, you don't have to give the third degree treatment to the person selling the meat. Where did this come from? It kind of smells a little bit like idol, the idol temple right next door. Smell some incense on this or something. Is this, is this idol meat? You don't have to function in that way. Paul says, no, what you need to do is you need to buy it and eat it. And the reason you can do this, if you look in your Bible, verse 25, Paul grounds the reasoning in the scriptures. He says, for the, earth's, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other, way, in other words, when you're down in the marketplace around unbelievers, you don't have to give them the third degree treatment, ask them where it's coming from, just buy the meat and eat it because God is the original source of all food anyway. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And that leads us to another scenario. I hope you see here that in that scenario, we, we begin to see that Paul does not want uh, them to socialize with lost people in idol temples, but he does expect them to function normally in the marketplace. Because Paul anticipates and desires for believers to relate to lost people. He also desires for believers to engage in social connections with unbelievers around food. As we come to verses 27 through 30, I think that we'll be able to see this. So Paul's answer about the marketplace was what? Yes, you can eat it there. Now we go into the third location. This is the key to this text, right? The third location, verses 27 through 30. What about in the home of an unbeliever? And while Paul's answer might at first appear to be a contradiction... It is driven by principle. And the principle is what I've described, described as the principle of flexibility relating to lost people. Look in your Bible at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 27. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night... Uh, I'm sorry, that is a familiar text. That was verse 27, the wrong chapter. Okay, 
I could preach on that one. That's a good one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 27, not 11. And verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you be disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? As we come to these verses in the text, I believe that Paul is imagining a third scenario that will help the Corinthians know how to relate to idle meat and lost people. This scenario, I'm going to argue, takes place in the home of an unbeliever. If you're reading from the King James Version this morning, you'll know that it says in verse 27, this occurs in a feast, at a feast. And uh, that translation is fine as long as you realize that the feast, in my opinion, is occurring in the home of an unbeliever. I want to make this point with you. I think it's important to understand here for a moment. There are a few different reasons why I think this scenario is taking place in the home of an unbeliever. First of all, in verse 27, we find out that the host is an unbeliever. It's one unbeliever. If, if an unbeliever invites you to a dinner, okay, so it is an unbeliever, but secondly, I don't believe that Paul has the idol temple still in his mind here or the meat market because he describes this unbeliever holding a, a, a feast here. And and if what he says in these verses is accurate and true, and he's talking about the idol temple, it would be a direct contradiction to what he just said in verses 14 through 22. Verses 14 through 22, the answer was what about the idol temple? Can we go into an idol temple and eat idol meat? What's the answer? No, it's clear, flee idolatry. But here he says, if an unbeliever invites you to a feast, go. Okay, so he can't be talking about the idol temple anymore. Another reason it's not the idol temple is because it's, this text says that uh, the, the believer it has to rely upon another person to tell them that the meat has been offered to idols in verse 27. Okay, and my question would be, if you're sitting in an idol temple eating idol meat and someone else has to tell you this is idol meat, there just might be something wrong with you. Okay, imagine the scenario, you're in the idol temple eating the cheap meat, and then someone comes in and says, you know what, this is idol meat. Really? What? Oh, I didn't know that. So this is a different scenario entirely. It's outside of the idol temple. There's one unbeliever inviting you to a dinner. And then I add to that that uh, most meals in Corinth did not typically occur in public locations outside of the idol temple. I mean, you had the idol temple or you had homes where meals would occur. And so in this passage, he's talking about how we should function in the home of an unbeliever. Having set the location for the scenario, let's look closer at what Paul says. And I want to summarize his counsel with two statements. First, in verse 27, and then the end of the text, 
Paul justifies eating at an unbeliever's home. Paul justifies eating or eating meat at an unbeliever's home. I think verses 27 through 30 are a difficult paragraph to understand. At least they were for me for years. One of the reasons I think it's difficult is because of the two questions at the end of the text in verse 29 and verse 30. Those questions seem to, in some ways, maybe even just slightly contradict the verses right before it. And so for years, I, was really, I really struggled with this paragraph. But I want to encourage you to think about doing one thing that will help you with this text, and it will be, be, become hopefully a lot clearer to you. And that is, I would encourage you to put a parenthesis marker, the front of a parenthesis, in front of verse 28, and then to put another parenthesis in the middle of verse 29, right before the questions start. For in my opinion, in those verses, Paul considers a parenthetical possible exception, but that the questions later on in verses 29 and 30 that follow the parenthesis are intended to, to answer directly off of the text right before the parentheses. You say, that's hard to understand. I say, we'll figure it out, okay? Uh, let's look at this text. Look at verse 27 uh, for the situation. In verse 27, it says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to, to a dinner or to dinner and you be disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. This is the situation. Paul states that the Corinthian believers may eat everything placed before them in a private home and that they do not have to worry about asking any questions on the grounds of or for the sake of conscience. You look at the end of verse 27, uh, Paul never really tells us clearly whose conscience he's talking about there. I think it's just comprehensive. Could be your conscience or the conscience of another person. But Paul says, when you're in the home of an unbeliever and they serve you meat, you don't have to ask any questions for the sake of your conscience. So we should not be obligated or feel obligated to interrogate our host about the history of the food that's set before us. In other words, understanding where something is coming from is no longer important once you're out of the idol temple. Okay, now, if you're in the meat market, go and buy and eat. If you're in the home of an unbeliever, don't even ask. Just eat. Outside of the idol temple, the meat becomes something that is accessible. That's the situation. After laying that instruction, Paul gives a parenthetical exception to it that we're going to skip, verses 28 and 29a. But then he gives the reasons why we have freedom at an unbeliever's home with two questions in verses 29 and 30. So Paul made the point, you can eat there, no problem, just eat it. And then he grounds that with two questions. As a matter of fact, in your Bible, look at verse 29. In the middle of the verse, it says, For why should my liberty 
be determined by someone else's conscience. You can eat it there, don't worry. Conscience, someone else's conscience shouldn't judge you. In fact, that word for in my Bible, I've circled it, and I've drawn a line up to verse 27 to remind me this is a ground or reason why I can eat meat in the idol temple, because other people's conscience won't be judges over me. Then he gives this other question in verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? In other words, why should I be willing to be slandered concerning something for which I give thanks to God? Why shouldn't I just enjoy the food that I give thanks to God for? Some of the Corinthians might ask, and I think Paul would in many ways agree with them. Verse 30, the word that's translated denounced is a very strong word that could be translated uh, blasphemed or slandered. And so the stronger believer when asking, you know, why would I let someone else else's conscience sit in judgment over me? That doesn't seem to be the final judgment in my life anyway. And then they ask this question, you know, why, if I pray and thank God for the food, should I allow myself to be blasphemed or slandered because of it? I think that strong word, blasphemed or slandered, should remind us that we have an obligation to be careful in how we treat people who disagree with us in areas of Christian liberty. I think too many times in the church, we run to slander people before others and ruin their testimony in the assembly. We say things like, Can you believe that he went to that place? I don't think that's right. Do you? Or we say, guess where she went? And guess what she did there? I don't think that's what the scriptures teach. I mean, that's at least highly questionable. If you ask me, I think it's wrong. You know, someone should really say something to her about this we can very easily jump to slander and blaspheming other people who we disagree with in areas of Christian liberty. And we need to be very careful. Just because a believer is more open in liberty practices does not mean that we can slander them or denounce them. Instead, we must demonstrate maturity that recognizes that life is complicated. Christian liberty issues are hard. That's Paul's giving us these, some of these complex scenarios. You go into the idol temple, behave in this way. When you go, uh, when you go to um, the meat market, you can function in this way. And then when you go to the home of an unbeliever, you do this. Good people disagree in areas of Christian liberty, and just because someone is more open than you are does not necessarily mean that they're wrong. So we shouldn't run to defame them. 
In fact, in this text, if you're paying attention to the context, and I've tried to lay it out kind of painfully slow, right? The context, if you lay it out, the most conservative person was the person who was wrong in this text. Now, it's also true that the most progressive person was wrong. (laughs) Person who says, you know what? I can't ever have any idol meet in any location. It doesn't matter where it is. It's tainted by idolatry. We'll listen to Paul's words here and say, whoa, 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 Paul, you say, meat market, I don't need to ask? Are you a liberal? Start blaspheming the name of Paul. You say, I can actually eat it in the home of an unbeliever? That's exactly what he's saying. And the person who's most liberal, who says, you know what? Meets nothing, idols nothing. They said last week, I got this. Where's the idol temple? Runs into the idol temple, begins eating. He's wrong too. Whether well, certain locations is permissible and it's, it's possible, not in the idol temple. And so the most conservative person is wrong. The most progressive person is wrong. The truth is in between. And so Paul helps them through this scenario. And he, in verses 27... 29 and 30, he justifies eating in the home of an unbeliever. By the way, I sure hope that if you're ever given an opportunity to eat in the home of your neighbor, your lost neighbor, that you would take it up and you would look for opportunities that you could have to point them to Jesus Christ. Second, we have verses 28 and 29. And here, Paul describes a loving exception to freedom at an unbeliever's home. This is why I called the parenthesis. Verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Here, after establishing the believer's right to eat meat in an unbeliever's home, In verse 28, Paul says that believers should not eat meat if another's conscience is offended at the practice. And really, uh, the biggest question we need to answer to make sense out of this text is whose conscience is he talking about in verses 28 and 29? Matter of fact, if you're taking notes, you flip to the back. Hopefully you've seen I did transition to the back. And on the back, there's a box where I ask, Whose conscience is Paul talking about in verses 28 and 29? And you know, there are a lot of possibilities here, and I've narrowed them down to just four. Okay, and I want to give these to you. Some people believe that the conscience Paul's describing in verses 28 and 29 would be the conscience of the unsaved host who's invited you to a dinner at his home. I would say this is probably the simplest explanation of the passage, right? I mean, to this point in the narrative, you just read like there are two people. Unsaved host and you, believer. Okay, it is the simplest explanation. And if it is true, um, I like the idea that the host is trying to help you out more than just trying to be difficult. Okay, so imagine a scenario, the host brings the meat into you. It's been a long time in that culture since you've had meat. You're, you're salivating, you're ready. And she goes to give it to you and she says, oh, by the way, this has been sacrificed to idols. Enjoy. 
You, know, you could either suggest that her motive is to just like test you and your resolve, or her motive is, you know, I just, I hope it's not a problem. If I got this down at the market, it was cheaper. You know, it's good meat, solid. Yes, it had idolatry, but here, take it. Would you mind eating it? Okay, so it could be. It could be that the conscience is the unsaved host. Other people say, no, I think it's an, an, a different guest who's at the party, maybe an unsaved guest. But uh, that idea seems to make the text a little too complex for me. Okay, there's no clear indications of that. However, there is another person who might be at this party, at the home of an unbeliever. Okay, and so the third possibility that people suggest is that this is the weaker believer from 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 that we've seen all throughout. So the weaker believer has somehow arrived at the party as well, and he becomes aware that the meat has been offered to idols, and he sounds the alarm. He sounds the alarm. I think this view makes much sense out of this scenario. I think it could be very possible and so imagine the weaker brother who's at the party, and you got this unsafe host serving food, and the weaker brother says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute over here? You know, anytime he pulls you over here, you know you're in trouble. So he pulls you over here, and he says, you know, I, I found out, I, you probably don't know this, but I just found out that this food came down from, you know, the, the, the temple of Aphrodite. I don't think we should eat the meat. Okay, and so then how do you respond to that as a believer? Right, you pull him aside and say, okay, What? Biblical reasons do you have? Okay, so number one, why are you offended that I would eat this meat? Because I'm just about ready to. Why would you be offended that I would eat this meat? What biblical reasons do you have? You remember this? Remember the grade I gave you? What biblical reasons do you have? Let me tell you biblical reasons if you have enough time. Or you could, if those set of questions don't, don't work, you could say, how did you get invited to this party anyway? <laughs> or, you know, don't you have somewhere else to be? I, th- I think someone called. I think maybe you need to. Head out. So it could be the weaker believer. It could also be, and here's the fourth possibility. I used to always think it was a weaker believer. But it could be any person. Any person in this scenario. I think this is the best solution. The answer to the owner of the conscience is as broad as the pronoun someone. Found in verse 28. Look at verse 28. But if someone... Could be translated, any man, any person, any person or someone comes to you and says this, this has been offered and sacrificed to idols and do not eat it for the sake of the someone who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but the sake of someone, this person here who's also at the party. So Paul, I believe, is stating that every other person's conscience is important to consider when making personal choices. Although the Corinthians have the freedom to eat meat in the home of an unbeliever, there are certain life situations where the most loving thing to do is to forego the freedom temporarily so that we do not bring some sort of moral crisis to someone else. So every other person in the room is your concern. See, man, that is like, whew, I don't know if I like that. The text says someone. This is anyone. 
How in the world could God expect someone to be concerned about the spiritual well-being of every other person in the room? And again, I think uh, John Coates talked about that this morning. I think Pastor Paul mentioned it this morning when they pointed us to the perfect example of Jesus. Jesus was always concerned about every other person in the room and their spiritual condition. And so because I follow Jesus, I care about all the other people there and their spiritual development and growth. So flexibility is required for mature believers as they minister to others in life. And I think spiritual maturity teaches us that different scenarios require different approaches with our freedom and our liberty. I think that concept in a physical realm is is true in other areas of life. So, for instance, in battle, in battle, you can't take the same approach in every battle you go into. Okay, now I'm going to admit here, I am no expert tacticianist when it comes to battle. Okay, I'm a novice, but I know you can't take the same approach to every battle. If you've got a scenario where it's just you and one other party, one other group or people, you have a certain approach, and I know it would be dependent upon your geography, it'd be dependent upon the physical resources you have available to yourself and the resources they have. Okay? However, if, if, if in this scenario things change so that now there's a third party introduced, let's say that the third party introduced is a fellow weak and wounded soldier. Your battle strategy would have to be different, right? Okay, now I'm, again, I can't tell you, and there's many people in the room who can tell you what you should do in a scenario like that. But when it comes to liberty, Paul is saying there may be other moments and other times with unbelievers in your life, but you have a wounded, weak brother here who is your priority. So I think Paul says something like this, retreat and take care of your brother or sister in the Lord. This is what uh, the text gives us as a loving exception to practicing my freedom. And so may I encourage anyone within the body here, when you see weakness in the church, to respond with care and compassion. You know, when we see weakness in the physical arena, most of us respond with care and compassion. See an injured little kitten, what do you do? Tramp on it? No. Most normal people wouldn't. You care for the kitten. You see a little baby all by itself. What do you do? You see someone who's handicapped, who can't care for themselves. Well, when you see a believer who's weak because of their past in a certain area, how should you respond? Our flexibility with our freedoms should always consider struggling believers as well. Let's pray together. Father, we again thank you 
for this text of Scripture. I'm so grateful for the way Paul imagined different scenarios where the, the, the uh, Corinthians' liberty would be tested. I'm thankful for how helpful this is for us as we imagine our own scenarios in life. The challenges that we come across in knowing how to relate to the world. How not to concede in a way that's a compromise. But how to properly relate to them so that we might give them the gospel. Or I'm thankful for the principles here. I'm thankful for what Paul says about flexibility. As I mentioned last week, I think this is a key idea for a grace church. To be a grace church, allowing others certain amounts of freedom in areas of Christian liberty. And if there's a question, not running to defame or to blaspheme, but running to love and to question privately work through the scenario. And all along the way, trying to be flexible in the way that we use our freedoms and liberties for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.